I'm sure that there are some people here who are more experts on Star Wars than I am. <laughs> and please don't, at the end, be afraid to shoot out very difficult and even insulting questions. <laughs> Let's start with the title. I call it George Lucas versus Western Civilization. Not because I don't love the Star Wars movies, I do, but because the philosophy of George Lucas is very contrary to the philosophy that has made Western civilization great. So I call this cosmology wars in Star Wars. Uh, the real war is not between the Empire and the rebels. The real war is between George Lucas and Western civilization. Two different cosmologies, two different worldviews. Uh, you can have a great movie based on a false worldview. I think you have that in the Star Wars trilogies. But here is why I think the uh, worldview is a false one. In this weird-looking diagram at the top of the page, you see Western civilization on the left and George Lucas on the right. And you see under Western civilization uh, two sources. One comes from Greece and Rome, and the other comes from Israel. If you want to make a map of the intellectual history of Western civilization, start with a swamp, have two rivers emerge from the swamp, uh, have them run separately for a while and then blend into a single river, and then separate again. The swamp is myth. Two cultures developed radically different ways of thinking than myth, one centered in Athens, the other in Jerusalem. One centered on Socrates, the other centered on Jesus. The twin poles of Western civilization. The, the, the two stars of our double star system. The two people that two of the most interesting thinkers in modern philosophy uh, focus on, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. They are Kierkegaard's two heroes, they are Nietzsche's two villains. Uh, Kierkegaard saw himself as the Christian Socrates and explicitly said that the relation between Socrates and his students is the highest relation that any mere human being can ever bear to another mere human being. But Kierkegaard also said that every sentence he ever wrote in all of his voluminous and manifold works, including the diary of the seducer, uh, was uh, a missionary's cover because he saw himself as a spy whose mission was to sneak Christianity back into Christendom under many different spy covers. Uh, the critics hate that. Uh, Nietzsche focused just as much on those two figures as Kierkegaard, but they were the two villains, the uh, two worst things that ever happened in the history of Western civilization. Because Jesus claimed to be God incarnate, and uh, Socrates is basically God without a face, the Logos, uh, abstractly instead of concretely. Well, they both at least have the right focus. And my two columns in Western civilization are those two rivers, which run separately for a while until Christian missionaries go out and convert the Roman Empire, and then you get the Middle Ages, which is a synthesis, like a marriage. Here's Romeo, she lives alone for a while. Here's Juliet, she lives alone for a while, they get married. Uh, and then they get divorced. <laughs> and now we are in the result of that divorce. Uh, and the original forms of the divorce, the Renaissance and the Reformation, lead to more established forms of it. The Renaissance leads ultimately to the scientific enlightenment, and the Reformation ultimately leads to 
non-religious forms of it, like uh, existentialism and romanticism and irrationalism and fideism. Uh, and now, where are we? We don't know. We're in another swamp. We're not ancients. We're not medievals. We're, mo we're not moderns. We're postmodern. What does postmodern mean? Nobody seems to know. Uh, it means either anything goes or nothing goes, or both, or none of the above. So I've just given you a summary of Western civilization in three minutes, so you don't need to take any history courses. Simplifications are very useful. That's what a roadmap is. If a roadmap told you everything, every little town along the way, you'd be hopelessly confused. So I gave you a very useful oversimplification. Now, under Western civilization, I have these two rivers, these two sources, the uh, classical and the biblical, uh, the pagan and the Judeo-Christian. And under George Lucas, I also have two sources, uh, but they're neither pagan nor Christian. One of them is ancient uh, Hindu mysticism or Eastern philosophy. Uh, most Hindus see Buddhism as a, an offshoot of, of Hinduism, and Buddha saw himself as a kind of a Hindu reformer. So uh, it's a single worldview, essentially, with significant differences. Uh, and he blends that with something that, although it emerges from Western civilization, is radically at odds with both of the roots of Western civilization, namely modern pop psychology. So you've got two, new, uh, two marriages here, the old one and the new one. The old one is Western civilization. It's still alive, but it's breaking down. Uh, the other is Lucas's very popular blending of pop psychology and Eastern mysticism. All right, that's abstract. Let's get concrete. I have square boxes under those titles, and I pick out two of the most important elements in each of these four traditions in what I call common sense Greece, Greek reason and Roman moralism, the classical tradition, in what I call the Judeo-Christian religion, the biblical tradition, in modern pop psychology, and in ancient Hindu mysticism. This is only one way of doing it. This doesn't mean to be the only or best map. It's just relevant to Star Wars. One of the basic ideas in the square under uh, Greek and Roman classicism is moral warfare. Both the Greeks and the Romans were moralists. All the Greek philosophers, even the sophists, focused on ethics. Uh, Machiavelli focuses on ethics. To be unethical, you have to focus on ethics. <laughs> and ethics is about good versus evil. Ethics is a kind of a warfare. If good isn't good and if evil isn't evil, if you go beyond good and evil or underneath it or you synthesize it, you're not in ethics at all. Ethics is essentially a warfare, just as epistemology, theory of knowledge, is essentially a warfare between truth and falsehood. Unless there is a distinction between ideas that are true and ideas that are false, epistemology makes no sense at all. How do you know the truth as distinct from falsehood? Similarly, unless good is good and evil is evil, ethics makes no sense at all. Just how do you define good and how do you define evil and how do you know uh, which is which and what do you do about it? Uh, many differences there, but the fundamental idea of all of ethics is that we are at war, not physically, but spiritually. So we have to fight for the good and against the evil. The fundamental rule of ethics, the, the fundamental principle of all ethics is do good and avoid evil, all right? That's pretty universal, but focused on by all the great philosophers of the Western tradition up until modern times. 
Uh, I think Descartes is the first major philosopher to have no ethics at all. He didn't get around to it. He was trying, actually, to perfect all the sciences, and he wanted to focus on medicine so that he could make himself immortal so that he could last until he got all the other sciences in order, and he reluctantly concluded that that wasn't going to happen. So he let somebody else do a purely rational scientific ethics. Probably can't. Hegel uh, has no ethics, amazingly. Heidegger has no ethics. It's amazing how many classical modern philosophers have no ethics, but every pre-modern philosopher has an ethics, and in a sense it focuses on ethics. One of the discoveries I made in reading a lot of primary source material in uh, ancient and medieval philosophy recently was that they are not nearly as speculative as we think. They're much more practical. The care of a soul, that's the ultimate point of, of all the philosophy, of the metaphysics, of the cosmology, even of the logic. And the separation that we make between the theoretical and the practical, between purely looking at truth for its own sake, which is a noble thing to do, and dealing with good and evil, the separation between those two things is artificial and modern and relatively recent. You don't find that in the great tradition. So everything really is geared to this moral warfare. All right, that's one interesting war that we have. Then I've got another box under that uh, called technology, which doesn't seem to have any necessary relationship to moral warfare. Obviously, technology is a good thing in itself, which can go bad, and it can do a lot of good and a lot of evil, and it's a kind of power. So what's that got to do with warfare? Well, that's a war between power and impotence, between being ignorant of and not in control of the forces of nature, and knowing by science and mastering by technology the forces of nature. So that's another interesting thing. That's another dramatic thing. It's no accident that drama flourishes in the West, not in the East. The vertical bars there connecting these two ideas are kind of thin and questionable, but they're there. All right. Those are two of the ingredients in the classical half of Western civilization that I'm going to contrast with two of the ingredients in Lucas's philosophy. Then in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we have the fundamental moral imperative of love. Jesus summarizes the entire law, and he speaks as much as a Jew as as a Christian in saying, love God with your whole heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor with yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law. So at the very center of, uh, of ethics is the demand for agape, for divine love, for unselfish, self-forgetful love of neighbor for the sake of neighbor. We all know that. Uh, Christian education hasn't worked very well in the last couple of decades, and it's in crisis in many places, but at least everybody knows that lesson. At least that's not something hidden or denied or uh, kept in the closet with specialists. All right. Another specifically or typically Judeo-Christian idea is individual freedom. Because God in the Bible is a person, actually implicitly in the Old Testament and explicitly in the New, three persons. An I, that's his name. In most other civilizations, the person, the human person, the individual, uh, obviously exists, but is not the center of reality. And the idea that each human being that can say I can do so only because he is created in God's image 
That's a uniquely Christian idea. Uh, even Muslims don't believe that, although they believe much of the rest of Judeo-Christian theology. And nobody in the East believes that. In fact, the standard position in most Hindu and Buddhist traditions is that the word I is the fundamental illusion. In order to be enlightened, you have to be freed from not only selfish desire, but also uh, mistaken thought. And the fundamental mistaken thought is that there is such a thing as an I, an individual ego. And once you overcome that, you're a mystic. Well, an individual is by definition free. That is, I am I, and therefore my choices are mine. Uh, I am responsible for my choices. It is not fate or destiny or the nature of things that is responsible for my choices. And you are not responsible for my choices. I am responsible for my choices. So that notion of freedom or free will, which involves responsibility, uh, is essential to Western civilization. You don't really have that in the East. That's why in the Eastern traditions, in the major religions of the East, in as far as I know, all forms of Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism, uh, there's no such thing as hell. Because the only reason there's hell is that there's free will. If God is really the devil, then he invented hell and wants to put people there. But if not, then he doesn't. So why is there hell? Because you jump into yourself. Oh. That's, I think, one of the deep reasons why Oriental religions are very popular lately in the West. They give you a kind of automatic, guaranteed, eternal fire insurance policy. <laughs> now, the connection between individual freedom and technology is obvious. The creativity unleashed by a kind of focus on the person and on the individual is the source of much technology just as the focus on agape love is the source of moral passion. If your morality doesn't have love at the center of it, then it doesn't touch your heart, just your head. Yeah, that's what I should do, that's the rules, okay. And my, I should let my conscience speak, okay. Uh, but love is much more important than that. One of the reasons almost everybody has problems with sex, morally, is that sex is a matter of love. It comes from the heart. It's, it's essentially passionate. And if your morality isn't passionate, it's not gonna conquer the sex drive, but the other way around. So what Christianity does is it puts at the very center of morality the only thing that's more passionate than sex, namely divine love. Thomas Aquinas says the only way to conquer a passion, uh, an evil passion, is by a good passion. That's stronger. And that's the center of moral warfare. So there's obviously a horizontal connection there between the two boxes of moral warfare and the box of agape love, just as there is between technology and individual freedom. Now, let's move to the right a little bit and contrast the four boxes in Western civilization with the four boxes in George Lucas's uh, cosmology. The one on the top contrasts, my dots are meant to be a contrast rather than a, a connection, a road, uh, contrast agape love with feelings. Many people today think love is a feeling. If that's so, Jesus is a fool. Because Jesus commands you to love. Now, if love is a feeling, then Jesus is the world's worst psychologist. He's saying, I command you to have sweet and nice and tender feelings all the time. Well, nobody but an idiot would say that. Love is the fundamental commandment. So we must be in control of it. It must be under our power. We must be able to choose to love or not to love. 
I read about a, uh, a marriage counselor who was a very tough guy, and a lot of people didn't like him, but he saved a lot of marriages because typically uh, a couple would come and uh, say, please help save our marriage. Uh, and he would say, how do you diagnose your problem? And they would almost always say, well, we don't love each other anymore. And he says, I got a solution for you in one syllable. Do. What do you mean do? Do. Love each other. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you can do it. It's your choice. You don't have to do it. It's free choice. But that's not what love is. Yes, it is. And if that's not what you had up until now, if you got married only because you fell in love, as you would fall in a pit, uh, then, <laughs> then start all over again. Choose. Do it. If you want to, you can. If you don't want to, you won't. Now, in the Star Wars trilogy, frequently the Jedi Knight is told in training, trust your feelings, especially Luke Skywalker. Doesn't say make the right choices, but trust your feelings. Uh, it, it assumes that love is a feeling. Well, that's emotivism. The content of ethics is not that different in Lucas's philosophy than in Christianity. I think he would agree with most of the Ten Commandments. And he certainly isn't uh, like Nietzsche, who wants a new morality to go beyond good and evil and to deny traditional commonsensical pagan morality or Christian morality for the sake of something like cruelty and arbitrariness and, and, and tyranny. Certainly not. But the foundation of morality is feeling. Okay, well, it's very popular. That's pop psychology. Uh, it's so popular that if you go into any bookstore and you go into the science section, you'll find that there are just about as many books, maybe even more books, on psychology than on all the other sciences put together. We're the psychological generation. We have ingrown eyeballs. We like to talk about ourselves. <laughs> and isn't it strange that in all the other sciences, uh, the more interest there is, the more progress you get and the more agreement you get. Once people started taking physics seriously, we got agreement about the nature of the universe. And once people started taking biology seriously, we got agreement about genetics and so on. That didn't happen in psychology. There was even more attention paid to what's going on in here and who we are than to any other science. And we've got almost no agreement in psychology. I'm, I'm told by my daughter, who is a clinical psychologist, that there are at least 16 different schools of psychology who all disagree with each other. And they're all you know, consistent and flourishing and, and acceptable. That's interesting. That's a puzzle. How come the more we think about ourselves, the less we understand ourselves? Well, I'm not going to solve that puzzle tonight, but <laughs> you see the difference between agape and, and emotion. On the bottom, you see another contrast between the individual freedom, which is an essential part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is based on reason and free will and responsibility on the one hand, and Lucas's psychology, which is anti-rationalism. Classic example of that is when there's a duel with the lightsabers, uh, the best thing, I don't think this was in the latest movie, but in at least two of the other ones, as long as Luke is trying to rationally figure out what his opponent is going to do next, he's not going to win. As soon as he closes his eyes, <laughs> he becomes sighted when he closes his eyes. He becomes blind when he opens his eyes. You have to get reason out of the way. Now, that's typical in Hinduism and Buddhism. 
I studied Zen Buddhism in Japan for a summer on a Danforth fellowship, and I interviewed a lot of the Zen Buddhist masters because I was fascinated with their psychology. And uh, one of them, uh, in a monastery, sat me down, and we had a nice conversation. After the conversation, he said, he said uh, are you hungry? It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And neither he nor I had lunch yet. I said, yes. He said, no, well, we have lamb stew in the monastery. I said, oh, I love lamb stew. He said, help yourself. Well, there was a big fire in a large fireplace, uh, and there was a big black kettle on the fire. Uh, it was about half empty. The monks had eaten their lunch already. Uh, he said, help yourself. And I reached out to the kettle, and I touched it very gingerly. It was very, very hot. I couldn't take the lid off. So I said, do, do you have any tongs? He said, no. I said, oh, do you have a hot pot holder? He said, no. I said, well, how am I supposed to get the lid off? He said, that's why you're here. I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, you're here to study Zen Buddhism, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, well, that's what Zen Buddhism does. I don't understand, I said. <laughs> Lamb stew, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful food, right? It's nourishing. It's what you want, right? Right. But you can't get it. Why? Because that lid is in between. So if you can only get the lid off, you could be fed. So you have to deal with that obstacle. I said, yeah, but you don't have any tongs. Yes, I do. <laughs> he said, yes, I do. I've written a book about it. Zen Buddhist meditation, those are the tongs. I said, oh, I see. So the, uh, the lid is reason. Exactly. And the lamb stew is mystical experience. Exactly. And unless you get reason out of the way, you don't get mystical experience. Now, in some Zen traditions, it's more violent than that. They actually hit you with paddles. Uh, and uh, there's at least intellectual violence in the koan puzzle. The koan puzzle is a deliberately irrational puzzle, which you have to solve. Guaranteed, you will never be enlightened until you solve this puzzle. And there's no solution. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Define the indefinable Buddha. How do you get a goose out of a bottle without killing the goose or breaking the bottle? No answer to that. But the koan works this way. It gives you a controlled mental breakdown. It destroys your reason without destroying anything else in your mind. It's like, it's like a wall, and you have to get across the wall to get to enlightenment, and you can't. So you keep beating your head against the wall, and the wall doesn't move, but your head eventually splits open and your brain spill out into the universe and you get cosmic consciousness. <laughs> or something like that. That's putting it crudely, but... <laughs> so reason's the enemy, and I understand that. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. If I believed that there was some kind of truth that was profoundly irrational, but the supreme meaning of life, I too would see reason as an enemy. In the Christian, in the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, and even in some of the Muslim tradition, although that's a little more split, reason is a friend, not an enemy. Reason will lead to truth if honestly pursued, because God is cosmic reason, he's mysterious, but he's rational, and he, he designed the world, and he designed us, and we fit together. That's not true in, in Hinduism or Buddhism, at least most forms of Hinduism. So you got anti-rationalism there. Uh, and therefore, your individual reason can't be trusted. Then on the right-hand side of George Lucas, uh, you've got magic, which obviously is very different than technology. You see the arrows going along the side of the paper. Imagine the arrows fighting a war on the back side of the paper. Magic or technology, well, they're very different. Uh, let me do a little thought experiment for you. Uh, let me make you answer a certain question. Psychologists sometimes test whether little kids are structuralists or functionalists. 
by uh, an experiment with toys. A structuralist is somebody who spontaneously classifies things according to their structure. A functionalist is somebody who spontaneously classifies things according to their function or use. The structuralist is usually a more theoretical or contemplative thinker. The functionalist is usually a more pragmatic or active thinker. Neither is right or wrong, they're just different ways of thinking. So uh, let's say you have a kid play with some toys for a while. Let's say there's a basketball and a basketball hoop and a baseball and a baseball bat. And then you say, put away the toys in these two boxes, two unmarked boxes. The structuralist will put the two balls in, the, in one box and the two non-balls in the other box. The functionalist will put the baseball and the baseball bat in one box and the uh, basketball hoop and the basketball in the other box. So now I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. There's no right answer to this question. It just shows what kind of mind you have. I'm going to give you four things that are part of Western civilization, and I'm going to ask you to put them in two boxes, classify them. Science, technology, religion, and magic. Three possible classifications. The, probably the, the commonest answer is you put science and technology in one box, and you put uh, religion and magic in the other box. Because science and technology are both rational, and they go by the scientific method, and neither religion nor magic do. So that's in terms of method. That's a reasonable classification. That's what most people would say. A very few people might put religion and technology together and science and magic together, although that doesn't make much sense. But C.S. Lewis, in The Abolition of Man, gives you a third classification. And this is supported by history. He puts magic and technology together, and he puts religion and science together. And he points out that magic and technology arose together in the Renaissance and flourished for a while and then died out. If you're thinking about method, that doesn't make much sense because technology doesn't belong together with magic. They use different methods. One's natural, the other's supernatural. But if you're thinking not so much about your head but about your heart and what you love and what you want, what you're most in love with, religion and science both want truth. Religion about the supernatural and science about the natural. Both of them want to know objective truth. They want to conform the mind to the nature of objective reality, whether nature or God. But technology and magic both want power. They both want the conquest of the object, not to submit to the object. So Lewis says to almost all of our ancestors, the fundamental problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. Uh, and the solution usually had something to do with religion. Conform your will to the will of God. But to our modern Western society, the fundamental problem of human reality is how to conform objective reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is technology or technique. Hmm. So technology and magic have something very much in common. And yet they're very, very different in method. They're antithetical. So they're both brothers and feuding brothers. Interesting relationship. Finally, the most important square of all. Ultimate reality in George Lucas's worldview, and this is Hindu-Buddhist mysticism or pantheism or monism, is the force. It's a single thing. It's all-powerful. It's like God, but he doesn't have a face, not a person. His name is not I, it's just the force. But it's clearly God. And the force dominates everything, not from without, but from within. It, it, it's in all of us, in, in, in a greater or lesser extent. 
You don't have to become born again. You don't have to have faith and charity. You don't have to accept God's offer. Uh, God's in you automatically. That's why there's no hell. Just the force. Now, that's a very popular view in the West as well as in the East. Many philosophers are monists or pantheists. Spinoza, for instance, probably Leibniz, certainly Hegel, uh, in a different sense, Plotinus. Uh, it's a natural bent of the human mind towards unity, towards unifying everything. Even in science, unless you have a unified theory, uh, you don't really have successful science. Poor Einstein never found, and we still haven't found, the theory of everything, or the unified field theory, which reconciles in a single the four fundamental forces of the universe. So that's a natural tendency. And if we follow that natural tendency uncorrected, we come up with pantheism. That is, there's only one being. The most philosophical book in Hinduism is the Upanishads, and probably the most important statement in the Upanishads is, there is a single word which is the source of all truth, and another single word which is the source of all error. The single word which is the source of all truth is the word one. The single word which is the source of all error is the word two. We ordinarily think that the two of us are two, and I and the world are two, and I and God are two, and God and the world are two, and the Upanishads deny all four of those dualisms. You and I are really one Atman, one super soul. And that super soul or Atman is really one with God or Brahman. So there's no creator-creature distinction. And what is the world? Well, the world is Brahman's dream. When he falls asleep and dreams, he becomes uh, Vishnu, the creator, and a universe comes into being. And it takes 14 billion years to grow. And then he wakes up and the universe disappears as a dream. And it takes another 14 billion years. 14 billion. Isn't it interesting that uh, we calculated that the Big Bang happened 13.7 billion years ago? So all we have to wait is 0.3 billion years and the universe will poop out. <laughs> but that's the force. Everything is the force. It's monism. Now, that is radically opposed to the fundamental ideas of Western ethics, both in the pagan and in the biblical sense, because if there's only one force, everything is in that force, and there's not a distinction, ultimately, between good and evil. The force has a dark side. Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. You find that in the Western tradition, too. You find it in Goethe's Faust. The traditional Faust story is a story of moral warfare. Faust is a fool who sells his soul to the devil. At this point, I am going to commit a minor sin. I'm going to not be able to resist the temptation to tell my favorite lawyer joke. The devil walks into a lawyer's office and says, what can I do for you? And the devil says, that's uh, what I can do for you. I can make you richer than Bill Gates, more famous than Alan Dershowitz. All you have to do is sign this little contract giving me your soul and the soul of your wife and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren down for 30 generations. The lawyer takes the contract, reads it carefully, looks up suspiciously, squints his eyes, and says, So what's the catch? <laughs> Goethe says in Faust that the devil appears as somebody other than Faust and as his tempting enemy, but it actually it's Faust himself, his own dark side, and he has to integrate that. 
in, in the traditional version, the version you get in, in Christopher Marlowe's play and the version you get in Gounod's opera, uh, Faust is a fool who goes to hell. Uh, and he's very selfish. Poor Gretchen, who falls in love with him, uh, commits suicide when he rejects her. But in Goethe's version, that's just a learning experience. You see how this shocking idea that evil and good are ultimately identical, and this rather attractive idea of the force as just one thing, the, the God who is everything and in everybody, naturally fit together. If everything is part of God, then evil is too. Then God and the devil are the same reality, just different dimensions of it. Now, that's about the most horrible theological heresy thinkable. Now, I am not saying that all Hindus and Buddhists are going to hell or anything of the sort. They're usually wonderful people and the mystics are moralists most of the time. They take morality very seriously. But the theology of the Force necessarily says you have to go beyond this moral warfare between good and evil. In Judaism and Christianity and in Islam too, morality goes all the way up into God. God is good and not evil, light and not darkness. But in Hindu uh, mysticism, not so. And even in Buddhism, there is no God there, but there is Nirvana, and Nirvana is a kind of a psychological monism, although it's not a, a metaphysics, but it's, it's monistic. And in both cases, you need morality only to, to purify your soul from selfish desire and illusion along the way, but eventually you go beyond good and evil into the one that's, that's beyond moral warfare. Well, that's radically different than the heart of Western civilization. How do you deal with this? Two questions. One, is there really a contradiction there? There's a temptation to say, ultimately, all paths lead up the same mountain and meet at the top. Ultimately, all these arguments between religions can be solved. Ultimately, we have to have peace and not war. Ultimately, we have no enemies. That's not the biblical point of view. So that won't work. It's an either or. The choice between Western either-or and Eastern both-and is itself an either-or. Ravi Zacharias tells the story when he gave a talk at Harvard. A friend of his came up to him afterwards and says, uh, Ravi, we grew up together in India. We were both Hindus, and now you're a Christian, and you're arguing for Christianity. Ah, oh, you poor man. I love you, and, and I love Jesus, too, and I love Christianity, too, but, but now you're narrow. You're, you're a dualist. You say it's either or, good or evil, God or the devil, Christ or Antichrist. When you were a Hindu, you didn't believe that. You believed it was all one. Let's talk about it. So they went to a Chinese restaurant. And there was a table at a booth, and uh, Ravi was sitting on one side of the booth, and his Hindu friend was sitting on the other side of the booth. And Ravi said, let me, let me get this straight. You're saying that uh, I made a mistake, uh, because I used to be both and, and now I'm either or. I used to be broad, and now I'm narrow. Exactly. And you're still Hindu, and therefore you're still a monist, you're still broad, and you haven't left this enlightened wisdom as I have. Yes, yes, yes. And the enlightened wisdom is that there is no either or. That's right then why are you inviting me to come from my side of the booth over to your side of the booth? <laughs> oh dear, his Hindu friend said. It looks like the law of non-contradiction does rear its ugly head after all, doesn't it? <laughs> well, the first question then is, can you synthesize those two ideas? And the answer is no. Even if you say, I condemn the law of non-contradiction, that's got to mean I do condemn it and I don't not condemn it. 
So you're assuming the law of non-contradiction and condemning the law of non-contradiction. You can't get out of it. Sorry. It's either or. So if the East says good and evil are not an either or, they're a both and, and the West says good and evil are not a both and, they are an either or, they can't both be right. There's got to be an either or between either or and both and. That's the first thing. Second thing is which do you choose? And I think this is a choice that it's very difficult to justify in a purely rational way. If you don't have a heart, if you don't have love, if you don't have moral instincts, then you'll be confused. You'll say, well, each side is consistent, and on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, when God decides whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, is he going to decide on the basis of whether you pass a theology exam? Uh, if so, then there's got to be a cutoff point. So if you're only a heretic, let's say, uh, 40% of the time, and you get a 60, that's a passing grade, it's a D minus. But if you, uh, if you get a 59, and you're a little more of a heretic, then, then it doesn't work. That, that's ridiculous. So what does he judge? He judges your heart. Well, if your heart is simply... Uh, a pagan heart which likes all the virtues and likes to, to do all the right things and none of the wrong things, uh, what's your moral quotient? Is it a 60, a 59? Uh, do you go to heaven if you've helped uh, 59 little old ladies across the street and not 58? That makes no sense either. But if at the heart of your heart there is love, and if either you say a fundamental yes to God or a fundamental no to God, if God is like Romeo and, and you're like Juliet and he says, here is my fundamental choice. Do you run away with me and forsake all others and love me first and trust me and jump into my arms or do you not? And Romeo doesn't come to Juliet buttressed by a, a battery of philosophers with arguments or lawyers with contracts. He says, trust me, leap into my arms. And if you do trust him, what happens? You get pregnant with God. Which is why you have to be born again. And that's why you don't have to. That's why in Hinduism there's no hell, and in Christianity there is. You can say no, it's possible, you're free. So what do you do? Well, if you love, if you love God, I think even anonymously, if a pagan's confused about theology, but he truly loves that which God is, unselfish love and goodness and righteousness, he will be saved. He'll get some theology lessons after death, but God will say, you love me, you didn't know it was me, it's me. That's the absolute either-or. So the fundamental choice, I think, between Lucas's monistic, pantheistic force, on the one hand, and Christianity's either-or marriage proposal from a transcendent God, on the other hand, is decided ultimately by, are you a lover or not? Is love the deepest thing in your life? If so, that's the presence of God in your life. And I think that's the biblical worldview. Now, I promised I would do it for 40 minutes. I lied. It's been 50. I even lie about lying sometimes. <laughs> but I will now give myself the hook. The diving board is over. Let's swim into the swimming pool. Now comes the question and answer session, which is much more interesting. Thank you for waiting so patiently. Yes? reconcile the, the, the force, the dark side of the force versus the, you know, the good side of the force. And, and you know, there seems to be this idea in Star Wars that you, know, you want to avoid the dark side and the good side. How does that fit in? 
Very good question. I should have mentioned that in my talk. Um, the answer that uh, Hindu and Hindu-inspired... Repeat the question. Now. Okay. How do you reconcile the pantheism of the force, it's the dark side and the, the right side are ultimately one, on the one hand, with, on the other hand, the nobility of fighting for the bright side and against the dark side. Doesn't moral warfare fit into Hindu cosmology too? And the answer is yes, it does. In the same way that football fits inside a football field. That is, within the human level of consciousness, insofar as you're not enlightened, insofar as you think of yourself as an individual, you should fight for good and not evil. You should be moral and not immoral. Because only if you're moral do you get all these selfish desires out of your soul and then you can be a mystic. But once you're a mystic, you're beyond that. And then you see that even the evil that was rightly fought there was only the other football team. You're now a spectator. In fact, in Zen Buddhism, there's a level of consciousness called spectator consciousness, which means now you're not fighting anymore. You're not on the football field. You're in a seat watching. And you need both the dark side and the, and the bright side. Otherwise, there's no game. So at a certain point, you climb out of the ethical attitude and into the we love them both attitude, which you don't do in Christianity. But there is a, a, a good psychology there because if you're in any kind of sport or if you're in the theater, you have to have a double consciousness. On the one hand, you have to play with passion. That's the enemy. We got to beat him. On the other hand, at every moment, you realize that that's not the highest reality. Really, you need your enemy. And really, that's only uh, a fake villain on the stage, and you're just entertaining the audience. So, follow up kind of on that view, why is there a contest at all? What do they say is the source of the dichotomy? The source of the dualism, well, <laughs> Hinduism is very good at psychological techniques and methods and yogas and 12-step programs and ways up. They've done a lot of interior athleticism and a lot of psychology, and they tell you how to go from the bottom up to the supreme enlightenment. But their only answer to why then does Brahman uh, tolerate or dream this warfare? What's the origin of the dualism? And their single answer to that is play. Leela is the Sanskrit word for it. It's just a play. C.S. Lewis would say that every moral choice leads in one of only two directions. One is towards God and the other is farther away. And when you choose towards God, you choose in a way that leads you to greater understanding of both good and evil and yep. the other is farther away from God and farther from understanding both good and evil. So my question would be, at this point in my life, do we really start from the same place and as life progresses, choose our way towards heaven or hell? The answer to the second part of your question is yes. The answer to the first part of your question is no. We don't all start from the same place. Some of us have more obstacles to overcome than others. Uh, each of us has a different path. But there's only one God, only one heaven, only one hell, only two directions. And one road map, different cars on different roads. There's a north and a south. 
simple. Let's just keep it simple. If only philosophers would agree with that wonderful little formula, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Um, it could be anathema for many to bring this up. I was wondering if you'd comment on episode one, two, and three, and then episode seven. Do you think that those are kind of a continuation or an extension of, of the worldview from the original trilogy? Is it commentary? Is it just comedy well, and tragedy, or what? You don't get as much overt pantheism in episode seven as you did in one, two, and three. You get more of the emphasis on the warfare. Participant consciousness instead of spectator consciousness. It is not a serious tool for evangelization. It's popular entertainment. It's a lot of fun. So let's not take it too seriously. <laughs> Back to the question on the force. If, you, if the basis for all of this is trust your feelings, Luke, then who's good and who's bad? I'm sure his dad trusted his feelings. Ultimately, ultimately, you can't answer that question according to the trust your feelings philosophy. If morality is a matter of feeling, then there's nothing hard about it. There's no objective truth to it. You can't be wrong. And therefore, nobody's wrong except the person who says that there is such a thing as wrong. And there's no absolute obligation except the thought that there is an absolute obligation. And nobody's guilty of anything except feeling guilty. And the only wrong is the idea that there is a wrong. That's a very popular view. It's called non-judgmentalism. But it's self-contradictory because it judges judgmentalism. <laughs> I will not tolerate intolerance. <laughs> You can't be dogmatic. Dogmatic, I assure you of that. Um, so you mentioned um, the connection between like trusting your feelings and then the anti-rationalism, in the sense of that, of, like you have to get rid of reason to reach mm -hmm. mistake, whatever, reach your feelings. Um, how would you respond to someone who says that um, religion is something that is beyond reason? Um, that religion is that mystic enlightenment. The Judeo-Christian religion is opposed to reason. It is beyond reason, but it's not opposed to reason. Reason leads to it. Reason is God's invention. Reason is God's profit in the soul. Conscience is part of reason. Reason in the traditional sense is not just calculation, it's not just scientific method. It's the use of the intelligence. And conscience is not, first of all, a feeling. Conscience is, first of all, uh, an intuitive intelligence of the presence of good and evil. So. In the Christian tradition, for almost all Christians, reason has always been connected with God as a kind of guide or light. Come let us reason together, says God. Only rather heretical Christians oppose faith and reason. Uh, in the early church, uh, Justin Martyr was one of the early church fathers that said, because Christ is the Logos, another word, another English translation of that besides word or thought is logic, because God is supremely logical. Therefore, even the pagan philosophers who uh, followed reason as an absolute, especially Socrates who died for it, are really Christians anonymously. Then later, uh, Tatian said, oh no, this is not so. Reason is the enemy. 
Uh, Tatian died outside the church as a heretic. Justin was canonized as a saint. You have the same problem in Tertullian, who's a much greater theologian, but still his famous, I believe because it is absurd. And what concord does Athens have with Jerusalem? Well, Tertullian is at least the semi-heretic. But all the great theologians, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, Luther, Calvin, they all uh, said that natural reason and natural conscience is part of common grace and natural revelation. Kind of a follow-up question on that. I'm taking philosophy of religion right now, and we talk about the principle of sufficient reason a lot, um, and how it's like impossible to prove, but would you say that because we are rational beings and we are like wired to think and cause and effect, the principle of sufficient reason is true because of that, or provable in that way? You said the truth except for the word because. Uh, you can't prove it, and then you try to prove it. <laughs> you can't prove the principle of sufficient reason, but we believe it because of this reason. No, there's no reason for it. You have to believe it. In other words, although religious faith is not presupposed in using your reason, you can be an open-minded agnostic and use reason to, to lead you to faith, uh, and then you make a leap, and that's not just reason, but it's a leap in the light, and the light is sup supplied by reason. It's not a leap in the dark. Uh, yet, to trust your reason at all, to trust the principle of sufficient reason, to trust the, the, the law of non-contradiction, that can't be proved. So that must be faith. So a kind of necessary human faith underlies the use of reason, which in turn leads to a specifically religious faith. Or as Chesterton puts it, it is idle to talk about the war between faith and reason to uh, trust that your reason is any good at all is itself a matter of faith. <laughs> oh, back there, yeah. And thank you for the lecture. I heard George Lucas say that in an interview that his main motivation for doing Star Wars was he was repulsed by all the materialism in the 50s. His goal was to go, okay, what's the least common denominator with supernatural stuff? I think if you look at it like he goes from an F to a C, then I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're a Christian, you know Jesus, and you already have an A+, plus, you see a move from A to C, mm -hmm. and obviously it's a bad thing. So I right. think it's a mix. I think what he, was, what he meant feelings, he didn't mean the emotions. I think those are often blurry. I think he meant the spiritual, supernatural, not just natural conscience, but if there's something outside this realm, I think that was a good thing. You're probably right, and I accept your correction. <laughs> I think the hermeneutic of charity is always better than the hermeneutic of suspicion. That is, when you interpret something said by another human being as distinct from the scientific hypothesis, you must not be cruel. You must give them the benefit of the doubt. People should be judged as innocent till proved guilty. Sheer ideas should be judged as guilty till proved innocent, at least in science. And, and I like your, your, your image of the, of the three grades. Imagine. Imagine a diver who's halfway between the bottom of the ocean and the surface. Uh, from the viewpoint of the surface, he looks dark. From the viewpoint of somebody at the bottom, he's pretty light. So Lucas is certainly better than a materialist, but he's not as good as a Christian. And he might save some people from materialism. Good for him. In what ways uh, would you say that the Holy Spirit would differ from the Force? The Holy Spirit's a person. 
and the Holy Spirit does the work of Jesus Christ, just as Christ does the work of the Father. And that's something very specific. And the Holy Spirit leads us to do God's will and makes us into saints. And the essence of a saint is someone who loves God with his whole heart and soul and who does God's will. And that's not the force. The force doesn't lead you to do evil either. And in most Eastern mysticism, you, you, you go beyond that. Now, I'm not saying that that is necessarily evil. I think it's very dangerous. It's like hypnosis, where you put your ego and your will and your freedom and your choice on hold. And it's a very dangerous thing, because who knows what forces come in then. Comment on it in the Islamic tradition? Yes, yes. There's a very good book by Robert Riley called The Closing of the Muslim Mind, which is about the controversy in Islam in the 8th and 9th centuries. In early Islamic philosophy, you have mostly a cooperation between faith and reason. Uh, Islam discovered Plato and Aristotle centuries before Christians did. And there were great Islamic philosophers that negotiated that relationship, that marriage. And there were basically the same three positions in Islamic philosophy. Number one, uh, reason is higher than faith. Number two, faith is higher than reason. Number three, they contradict each other. And for ordinary people, faith is higher than reason. But for super intellectuals, reason is higher than faith. That's the double truth theory. Unfortunately, there was no Thomas Aquinas in Muslim theology to solidify the tradition that faith and reason are allies, even though faith is higher. So what finally dominated the main line of Muslim theology in the ninth century was the triumph of the Asherites over the, the Mutazilites. The Mutazilites said faith and reason are allies and the Quran is a rational book and must be interpreted by reason and we can trust our reason just as we can trust faith in divine revelation. The Asherites said no, the Quran may be irrational and if so, uh, don't trust your reason. Allah is pure will, Allah is not reason. And although many Muslims today question that, that still remains mainline Muslim orthodoxy. Although there's no such thing as orthodoxy in Islam because there's no central authority uh, and there's no agreement among the various schools. So Islam may well evolve into something much more rational in the future. There's a lot of pressure, especially in the West, on it to do that. The main line is still a kind of, of blind voluntarism. It's very much like the Platonic dialogue, the Euthyphro. Some of you, may, if you've studied philosophy, may have read it. Socrates asks Euthyphro, who's a young and rather arrogant so-called expert on piety, whether a thing is holy because God loves it, or does God love it because it's holy? And Socrates is a monotheist, and Euthyphro is a polytheist, but that ultimately doesn't matter because whether there's one God or many, if God or the gods love a thing because that thing is holy, then your reason can understand that. Then, then there's some connection between your mind and the divine mind. Uh, and then God is not arbitrary and irrational and not beyond good and evil, but definitively good and you can know that. If on the other hand, you take the other position that the only reason the thing is holy is that God loves it. So if God say, I, I love cannibalism, then we'd all have to be cannibals. And if God says, I hate charity, then we would have to avoid charity like the plague. Now, there were some late medieval philosophers who said that, notably William of Ockham, who was also a, a voluntarist. 
rather like the Muslim Asherites. Fortunately, that has never been mainline Christian orthodoxy. so complex that we don't have the unity that you had in ancient culture. There was there was no alternative to Homer. Okay. Everybody knew Homer somehow or other. There are alternatives to Star Wars. So that was the mythology of their culture, though. Oh, yeah. And I guess my question is, it seems like Lucas's saga is sort of functioning as the mythology of our culture to some degree. One of them. Yeah. So is Tolkien's Christian mythology in Lord of the Rings, True. which is yeah. even more popular. Do you think, what's your view, my question is, what's your view of the value of the Star Wars saga of the unfolding? I think it has immense aesthetic value. It's, it's very entertaining. Uh, it's cleverly done. Uh, it's fun. I would put it on a line with Harry Potter, which is also not specifically Christian, but there's some good moral lessons there. And, and I don't really think that the fundamentalists are right in saying that if you watch Harry Potter, you'll become a witch. <laughs> <laughs> but I have I have some some respected friends who disagree with that. I mean, see some real danger there, so I'm not sure. But neither of them is like Homer. Homer Homer had authority. Homer was not just entertainment. Homer was their Bible. Let's see how much authority entertainment has now. More than the knowledge no, I would disagree. I would say it has power, not authority. It has might, but not necessarily right. Authority is right. Since uh, Gnosticism was the chief rival to Christianity in the first few centuries, would you say something about how Gnosticism fits into the big contrast you're drawing to? Oh, yes. Yeah. Two fundamental doctrines of Gnosticism that are in conflict with Christianity are, one, it's esotericism. That is, the supreme truth can be known only by the elite few, the mystics. Whereas ordinary people have to take things literally, which the mystics go beyond. So it's a two-truth theory. Secondly, uh, Gnostics uh, are into spirituality. That is, rising above concern for material things into pure spirit. God, on the other hand, created matter and called it good. All matter is good. Matter is innocent. And matter is so important that God became matter in the incarnation. So that's very different than Gnosticism. Yes? You know, to be very honest with you, I don't remember. The lesson was so much more interesting than the I must have, because if I didn't, I'd probably be a little angry. <laughs> he was, he was a, a, a wonderful master, though. Uh, he knew nothing about me. I told him I was a philosopher, and I came here to study Zen, and I wasn't interested in converting or anything, but I just wanted to understand your, your worldview and your techniques and whatnot. Uh, and I asked him to, uh, to give me some lessons in, in meditation, because uh, 
you can use anything that's neutral and human for Christian purposes. And I have ADD, and I find it very difficult to pray, and I love to be able to concentrate, and I find it very hard, so I thought maybe the techniques might carry over into Christianity. And he refused. He, uh, I said, why? He said, you will never become enlightened, I guarantee it. I said, why not? He said, because I know who your favorite philosopher is. I said, I didn't tell you anything about that. Yes, but I know who your favorite philosopher is. I said, okay, who? Oh, Socrates, right? Yes, how did you know? He said, just after an hour of talking with you, I see that Socrates is in your head. You're always having a little internal dialogue with yourself. <laughs> you think dialogue is the way to truth. Half of you is up there on that pipe in the ceiling, look down, looking down at the other half of you and calling you a fool and questioning you. I said, yeah, that's how I think. He said, fine, think that way, but you'll never be a mystic. <laughs> uh, one area in which the Star Wars saga intersects with Christianity is the concept of redemption. Mm -hmm. Very powerful in the third, mm -hmm. uh, yep. first series. Uh, could you comment on how that... Yeah, Lucas is here borrowing something from Christianity. I'm not sure whether there is something like this in Hinduism. There's certainly something like this in paganism. Uh, the death of the innocent somehow redeems the guilty. And to be godlike is to accept that death and resurrection. That's not a specific Christian thing. You find that in a lot of paganism. In Norse mythology, for instance, Odin dies uh, on a tree, uh, sacrificed himself to himself for the sins of his people. Now that's myth, that's not history. But C.S. Lewis calls the incarnation myth become fact. He sees all these connections between pagan mythology and Christianity. The difference is that in Christianity they're true and real and historical. So we shouldn't be surprised by a lot of connections between Christianity and other religions. We got time for more questions. Will God give us lightsabers in heaven? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little bit like the question that C.S. Lewis heard from a little boy whose father was trying to give him some sex education, and the little boy says, couldn't quite understand the, the ecstasies of sexual intercourse, so he said, can you eat chocolates while you're doing it? <laughs> So my answer to your question is probably the same as his. Yes, but you probably won't want to. There are higher things. dark tunnel and you see a light and you're lost, you'll let the light guide you, right? You follow the light and you think that's the way out of the tunnel. It's not a person, it doesn't have a will, but it guides you. So I think that's what he meant by let the force guide you. It's not a person with a will, you can't love it, you can't pray to it, but it's a kind of a light and if it's a true light, it'll, it'll guide you. So it's kind of intuitive reason. I think uh, Dave was right in, in clarifying or correcting my reduction of the force to a feeling. It's not just a feeling. It's, it's an intuition. It's a seeing. Yeah? 
So, uh, Chris, first and foremost, thank you for having us and inviting Dr. Crave. Dr. Crave, thank you so much for accepting the invitation and sharing some knowledge, some great knowledge with us tonight. Uh, my question is kind of twofold. Uh, the first one is the whole notion of this kind of oneness, this new age, you know, which is essentially, as you explained, not so new. What do you think it is about that whole new age oneness concept that has become so popular within this particular generation? And then my second question is one that philosophers either love or really despise. It's a hypothetical. So uh, will Star Wars be discussed 300 years from now? Will it be known? Will it be discussed? I know it's very hypothetical, very, uh, but so those are my, my two questions. Well, I'll beg off on the second question because I have no crystal ball, so I shouldn't pretend to have one. Granted that it's not a profound, original, philosophical masterpiece, but just darn good entertainment. Uh, are there pieces of darn good entertainment that are a couple hundred years old? Yeah, let's say A Midsummer Night's Dream is a delightful <laughs> piece of entertainment. It doesn't have the profundity of a Hamlet or a Lear, but we still read it. So, yeah, maybe. The question is maybe. Uh, the answer is maybe. The first, que the first question is much more profound. Why is the New Age movement so popular? Because people are stupid. <laughs> I want to make a political statement here. I shouldn't do this. The reason why the United States of America is going to be in the hands of either Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton is Donald Trump. And I used to believe in the common sense and the wisdom of American people, but when they fall in love with a bully, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand it. I'm not talking about policy here, about issues, I'm talking about personality. And people say, since he doesn't have any particular policy uh, answers, uh, they're in love with his personality. But let me, let me be serious for a minute. New Age movement absolves you of personal responsibility. You don't have to enter the war. You don't have to choose the good side. You don't have to take responsibility. You don't have to talk about old-fashioned ideas like honor or honesty. All you have to do is come along for the ride and send your spirit up to whatever it is. That's fun. Uh, that's the difference between a movie and a war. Why do we like war movies? Because we get all the fun out of war without the, the pain and the need to fight and the need to, to sacrifice. You don't need to sacrifice anything in the New Age movement. Your, your religion is like a book on, in, in, on a shelf. When you feel like it, you open the book, you're entertained, you put it back. It doesn't bother you. It doesn't have any legs. It doesn't run after you. It's not the hound of heaven. The true God is. Uh, Jesus was not a New Ager. Uh, New Agers are nice. You don't take nice people and put them on a cross. May I ask one more? Yeah. I have a question I'm dying to ask you, Dr. Crutch. I've been aware of your books and your work for many years, and all through my graduate study stuff, I've read seven or eight of your books. And I've read a couple other books in heaven, Al Corner's book in heaven and so forth, and so this has been something I've thought about a lot. And I often reflect on entertainment, how... Um, Almost every story, war movies that we like, and um, everything is a contest and it's a fight, but it's kind of a war, and that's what makes for drama, yep. and it makes for 
the progression of plot, you know, if you study that in the English literature and all the rest of the elements of that. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem like there will be wars in heaven, yet it will be interesting and eternal. So um, how will we, there, there will probably be contests. I don't know if there will not be contests, but there won't be, I suppose, war in the sense that we know it, where spiritual warfare, country warfare, whatever. And so, um, will it just be sort of endless progression of building and enjoying God and producing wonderful things like gardens? And that is a profound question. And my only answer to it has to be based on the fact that there has never been a good movie about heaven. Most books about heaven are dull. Hell is much more interesting. <laughs> Why? Because here's how the Bible describes heaven. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. It's literally inconceivable. Somehow or other, all kinds of good are reconciled in heaven. The good of peace and the good of war. Will there be all the good that we find in drama and tragedy and war in heaven? Yes. Will there be the horror and injustice and, and, and suffering and death that we find in war? No. How can you have the one without the other? We don't know. God only knows. Trust him. Can't do better than that, sorry. <laughs> I have kind of a comment on the last two questions that I'd like you to respond to. Um, you mentioned earlier the natural bent of the human mind towards unity, and I feel like maybe that's more, or not necessarily more, but a big aspect of what draws um, society to New Age, because there's so much tolerance and mm -hmm. everyone is fine as they are and be who you are and embrace those things. But tolerance that. isn't unity. Tolerance is, well, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. I'll create my own reality and you create your own reality. So tolerance is almost the opposite of unity. If, if tolerance means a totally non-judgmental autonomy, you, you, you create your own reality. And so do I. That's more like hell than heaven. I think in hell we create our own reality. My concept of hell is absolute loneliness. You don't really have any relationships with other people. There's nobody else out there. You want to be God? Okay, you're God. You're all alone forever. That's more horrible than fire. You can at least fight fire. It's something else. And there's something terrible about it. But there's something beautiful about it, too. It's like war. So why does Jesus use fire to describe hell? Because fire destroys. And hell is destructive. Uh, some of the mystics say that the fire of heaven and the fire of hell are the same fire. But in heaven, you love it because it warms you. And in hell, you hate it because it destroys you. Uh, light is the other image that's often used for heaven. Uh, rarely for hell, but in, uh, I think this is in the last battle, uh, the dwarfs, are in heaven, but they hate the light, so they shut their eyes and they're in the darkness. They're in the same place that those in heaven are in, but they hate the light. They're in the light, they hate it. And one of the mystics, I think he's Russian Orthodox, says that hell must be made of the love of God, because everything's made of the love of God. So why is it hell for those in hell? Because they hate love. They wish it was hate. 
They're like nasty little kids who want to fight with everybody. And mommy won't fight with them. Mommy uh, embraces them and kisses them. And that's their hell. They don't want that. Um, I have a question about hell because one of my friends who is a non-Christian said like he doesn't really dare hell, going to hell because like, he said he has forever, like eternal life after death, like in the hell. So uh, if it is a um, like if there is a punishment, he will take it forever, and then like uh, there is no reason to like be afraid of it because like he have like so many like endless time for being well there's one thing that i'm sure is wrong with that idea <laughs> after you die there is not endless time because time is a feature of this universe mm -hmm. time is correlative with matter uh, newton was wrong there's no absolute time einstein is right time is relative to matter moving through space now once your body dies your soul is no longer in that body and is no longer in this universe. So what your soul experiences after death is not endless time. It's something else. So to count on having endless time to, to do something after death is a, is a mistake. Now, I think that's the mistake of reincarnation. Reincarnation is the idea that your soul comes back and gets new bodies all the time. And that's pretty clearly contradicted in the New Testament. It is appointed unto us once to die, once, and after that, judgment, after that, eternity. Now, what is eternity? It's not time. That's what the word means, literally. So it's not time without change. That would be boring. It's not no kind of time at all, like the number two, or some abstract truth. It's a kind of life that doesn't depend on time and we can experience at least a, an analogy of that in this life when in our peak experiences uh, we don't look at our watches and it doesn't matter what time it is and we don't know how long it lasted was it two minutes or was it an hour if it was an hour it looked like two minutes and if it was two minutes it seemed like an hour so we do have glimpses in our lives of another kind of time, a higher kind of time. And I think that's what we'll get after death. But it's not the kind of time you can plan and control in this world. Let's say one more question. Yep. Yes. Dr. Kreef, just one final question. How do we develop that love for exercising our reason? How do we hone that and train that? Do. <laughs>